even if the world moved over to, um, you know, Tesla cars and people flying around, growing dragonfly wings and everyone's third eyes opening and, you know, the dawn of, of global empathy and uh, the great androgynous um, gender-free future that could be looming for us. Even if it all went well, after a while you'd be forgotten. The only thing that would that would remain would be the direction in which you sent the culture, which is a, an important thing, but it, your name would disappear. Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame. Episode 69, which isn't 15 minutes long. It isn't really about fame altogether, but it is a podcast. And I am Jamie, your host, and I am at, at prime perfect caffeination to quickly record this intro-outro. Well, let me take one more sip here. Ah, yeah. Okay. Ready to go. Quick intro outro today, because today is April 9th, and this has to get up on April 10th, and I'll tell you why in a minute. My guest today is Robin Hitchcock, whom you either probably know really well or not at all. In this weird world of niche fame, I feel like the world is broken up into people who say, of course I know who Robin Hitchcock is, and people who say, Robin who? I actually did have a fantasy or a little little scheme of maybe I would just list this episode as being as my guest being Robin <laughs> on Twitter, just because they do spell their first names the same way. The artist Robin, whom more of you certainly know of. Um, but I think the Robin Hitchcock fans probably think that as many people know who Robin Hitchcock is as who Robin, the female pop star is who i'd love to have you on the show robin i love your work as well just putting that out there i did mention the caffeine my guest today is robin hitchcock it's important to get this done today because he is playing next tuesday which is today's tuesday so nine and seven are the 16th at the stone church in brattleboro vermont right near here which i'm looking forward to and which is not sold out a wonderful, intimate space in which to see Robin Hitchcock. Go to StoneChurchVT, as in Vermont, dot com for tickets. StoneChurchVT.com. Let me read you Robin Hitchcock's biography from his own website. Robin Hitchcock is one of England's most enduring contemporary singer-songwriters and live performers. A surrealist poet, talented guitarist, cult artist, and musician's musician, Hitchcock is among alternative rock's father figures and is the closest thing the genre has to a Bob Dylan. Parentheses, not coincidentally his biggest musical inspiration, and parentheses, period. Since founding the art rock band The Soft Boys in 1976, Robin has recorded more than 20 albums as well as starred in Storefront Hitchcock, an in-concert film recorded in New York and directed by Jonathan Demme, and which I watched a couple weeks ago in preparation for this. And that it's really, if you like a certain Jonathan Demme concert film you may have seen, uh, this one is also quite good. Give it a, give it a watch. Uh, among the topics uh, we talk about, we ended up talking as much about music as about fame, if not more so. Um, among the people and topics that he had some really interesting thoughts and insights on are Andy Partridge of XTC, Julian Cope, Teardrop Explodes, Echo and the Bunnymen, Richard Butler, and the Psychedelic Furs, Elvis Costello, his former neighbor and friend Nick Lowe, the Beatles, who are, it seems, his biggest influence. Um, we talked about, as we did with Zach Trajano a couple weeks ago, the concept of legacy and what it means to want one or have one or can one have one. Sid Barrett, Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Bob Dylan, the idea of 
needing to take on another name like Elvis Costello to pursue fame on the, the willingness to be marketed as something. Uh, we talked a little bit about Sonny Smith. We talked about Ethan Hawke singing your song in a movie, which happened recently, uh, and which led to Robin's new single, uh, which you will hear on this episode. You will hear one song, one side of the double A side single at towards the end of the episode, and the other I'm putting at the very end instead of our our normal theme music, so I could fit them both in there. And we also have one earlier uh, Robin Hitchcock song I'm particularly fond of early on called San Francisco Patrol. After the requisite 15 minutes Skype snafu. Robin and I spoke on the phone a few days ago in early April 2019. Here is Robin Hitchcock. So we were talking about the weather. Is it lovely there down in Nashville? Uh, it is, actually. It's, um, it's a kind of that rare beauty of of spring, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of uh, blue skies and sunshine and all that, but actually it does, it's doing it in a beautiful way. I mean, a way that I like. Um, it's one of those, what I call optimistic weather. Did you think about moving somewhere like Portland or San Francisco where it's grayer? Um, well, I've done time there. San Francisco is pretty much over now, fortunately. It's, it's such a, it's the kind of oil and water effect that um, rampant capitalism has had, certainly over the last 30 years, means you've got these sort of, yeah, people wandering about. Well, the, the two parts to why San Francisco brings up stuff I wanted to bring up later is that only today... And what I do when I do these is I really enjoy kind of immersing myself in someone's work for a week who I've often it's unless it's someone who I adore. I got to David Sedaris. I didn't have to do any research. Uh, George Saunders. But with some people, I just dive in. And, and I did that with you in the past week. I watched the film. I listened to tons and tons of stuff that wasn't just the selections that Eugene made me a disc a long time ago of his favorites of yours. Um but I listened to San Francisco Patrol, and I lived there for, oh, yeah. for 14 years before I moved here. And it, it, it's one of my three main homes. And it, it, when, you, the, the, when, you, when you say the names of the streets, it just broke my heart. Oh, it, uh, I really love that song. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a sap. It's one of your more sentimental <laughs> songs, I think. But in learning about you, I didn't really find much about you besides performing uh, and San Francisco, but you clearly have some connection. I wrote it in, I think I wrote it actually while I was there or I made it up. Um, yes, I, I, it was the first place in the States that I spent any time apart from being on tour. I um, developed relationships. Um, I had two consecutive girlfriends with the same name in San Francisco, but, but they they were very different relationships. One was quite abortive and quick and the other was in a way very good. And I'm still friends with, you know, I went in as a tourist um, because that's how, because I was, you know, that's my first experience of being in the States. So San Francisco to me as someone who was 14 in 1967 kind of spread in pulsating rings out from the epicenter of hate ashbury but i got there 20 years after the initial hippie big bang and by then hate ashbury was not you know it was quite like camden lock in london the shops were selling the same clothes um there were people selling drugs but the kind of dead nostalgia hadn't kicked in yet. There weren't all those tie-dye T-shirt shops. It was not. It, it it was not selling its history as much as it had been. 
but I went in and imposed my own mental vision over it, you know. I think a lot of people do walk through with that filter, especially if they're visitors, but not residents. No, it would be harder to maintain the myth, but it's quite hard to mythologize a place and live in it, which is one of the reasons that I can mythologize Britain all I want now because I live in Nashville. Um, and uh, and cities lend themselves to mythologizing, as do relationships, as do people. So, um, yeah, you know, that's the thing, sort of find somewhere and then put yourself a safe distance from it. Um, this is occasionally through a sort of thick kind of Vaseline of, um, of myth, and, and you have it. Yeah. Uh, so that that accounts for it. But, you know, the real San Francisco is now pretty, this weird, you know, you see people kind of on Van Ness who are begging with, you know, like they've got no feet and they're standing in the middle of the road on crutches and there's people going by in neatly pressed chinos who are just off to the opera, you know, and it, uh, it uh, you know, you can have a nice salad and Barney's and then down on the street below people are vomiting. It's really, it, it, and the people that you're having, the, that are having the nice salad are, are probably not Trumpistos. They're probably good-hearted liberals, you know. Right, who who ride the bus to Google in the morning. And and of course, this is just us. You know, I, I, I do have some friends who have hung on and still have a, you know, they, they find their niches, but they're they're smaller and smaller. Well, it's more. It's also getting more and more expensive. So all of those places, which again, in a way, drive cities back into the realm of myth. If you can't afford to live in them, you know, because at least the geography is the same. So you can look out, you can come off the freeway, and you can look up Fell Street, or you can get to the Lower Height, or you can see City Hall, and it, the sun is shining from the same angle that it was shining. 30 years ago, 50 years ago.
You know that saying, that quote, the past is another country, they do things differently there. Yes, but I don't remember who it is. It's from, um, oh God, the go-between, um, L.P. Hartley. It's the first line of that, but I I just think that that, that just <laughs> describes it, that absolutely encapsulates what it's like to be in a place, but be thinking of how it was either before you got there or when you were little, you know. I'm I'm gonna use that to 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 force a transition to to your own myth and legacy. My last guest uh is a singer songwriter, um named Zach Trajano, who's who's known regionally around here and who is thirty years your junior and that would make him 20 years my junior. I'm about 10 years younger than you. And he brought up something in our conversation uh, when we did get to the, the fame part that I haven't asked almost anyone about. And that is, he was talking about, well, there's how much of a living do I want to make? You know, how much crowds do I, you know, what do I need? I, I He makes a living now through music. But what kind of, what would it need, what would I need to do to have a legacy? And I had never thought of a legacy. My any envious or need for attention is about living now. Legacy feels like believing in the afterlife, and I don't, you know. Uh, and mm. but you have a a legend and a legacy uh, that you that will go on at least for a little while. And I wonder how that you know feels you know in your place as compared to a, a young musician's place. Well, the first thing you need to have a legacy is to make sure that there are people after you. Yes, and that's um, more and so more in you doubt. You have to insure, insure a future. <laughs> yeah, uh, and the truth is, even if even if there is, even if nothing went wrong, even if the world moved over to, um, you know, Tesla cars and people flying around, growing dragonfly wings, and everyone's third eyes opening, and you know, the dawn of of global empathy and uh, the great androgynous um, <laughs> gender-free future that could be looming for us. Even if it all went well, after a while you'd be forgotten. The only thing that would that would remain would be the direction in which you sent the culture, which is a, an important thing, but it, your name would disappear. I mean, you can't really read Shakespeare now without a translation. Um, and, um, you know, certain certain things, you know, it looks like Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and Pink Floyd are set to last for um, as, as long as our civilization. Right. again, yes, as long as, long as we are um, here breathing, yeah. Um, but, uh, so really, you know, you can't, I mean, a legacy, a legacy is relative. You can't expect it to, you can't expect to outlast yourself by that long, um, no matter how big you you might 
want to be or how no matter how important you think your work is to humanity um that said i've always recorded for the future rather than the present and i've always been aware of um perhaps like the young guy you were interviewing that um my stuff that i want my my songs my whatever it is i do to outlast me and to be seen as a body of work when it's over mm-hmm. um but you know not probably not by many people probably just you know the a few kind of musical academics or <laughs> cultural people who are people who write will write books about the 20th century and you know and i will be seen as a footnote to bob dylan and the beatles who were two of the people at the prow of whatever it is that happened in the 1960s um and, and musically i'm as i'm i'm like an aftershock you know to for them um i think but in, but my principle is the same i i'm you know like the you know like the dinosaurs perished but the funny little hopping things or the geckos or the <laughs> the salamanders um or the iguanas they're not nearly as big they're like sort of little bite-sized dinosaurs the lizards they survived and i see myself as a kind of you know if bob dylan and the beetles are like a brontosaurus and a tyrannosaurus rex i am more like a uh you know a gecko or a salamander like a very a very a very small one designed designed along the same lines you know um i come from that time when when pop turned into rock and rock musicians were actually supposed to be visionaries you know at that point when people would be quoting rambo and um you know saying i is another and uh, the important thing to achieve is the complete disorganization of the senses. Um, Mick Jagger's character in performance says the only performance that makes it all the way is madness or something, some, you know, paraphrasing it. But So I, I, I'm from that time, you know, I, I wasn't designed. I, I had was at my most prominent in the 1980s, but I was my game my agenda was very different from duran duran's yes and and you seem you seem to be quite happy being that salamander hopping well yeah because i think because i think that's like because i think that's a way to survive even when i've gone i think at the level at which i have functioned i i I've managed to carry on uninterrupted. If I was bigger, I'd crash into more things, you know. But as it is, I just slip around the side. Most people don't notice me, you know. The people who, the people who know my name and have followed my story, may see I'm playing in their area, and they'll come along to a show if they feel like it, or they will see I've got a record out and they'll buy it. But, but there's no Robin Hitchcock profile to. Um, to sort of collide with the world, you know what I mean? I, I just wander around. Occasionally, somebody says, "Hey, aren't you Nick Lowe?" But, you know, that's, <laughs> I really, was going. I, I was going to bring that up with you because I've been very always kind of perplexed at how I was a Nick Lowe Elvis. That that was my you know uh, my era of music, and so I'm always kind of perplexed that I didn't know you then, and then I heard you talking to a fellow either it was a it was a podcast interview or sitting outside in LA a, re- a couple of years ago and you explained why I wouldn't know you it's because I was in that era of I from middle school I tr- you know turned against my Led Zeppelin Dylan roots and became a little new waver I'd love to say punk rocker but I wasn't and I be- went quickly went from iconic to completely ironic and you were somewhere in between the two and so it just wasn't, but I think of those two as your, as your colleagues and Eddie Partridge too, who I loved, but I never knew your music when I was really young. 
because you were in this in between, I think. Well, highly likely. I don't know. I mean, they also had a much bigger marketing. Well, Elvis did, I suppose. I mean, Elvis was Elvis was Elvis Costello was big. Um, (laughs) Nick was sort of medium, but he wrote Peace, Love and Understanding, which was a hit for Elvis. And he produced Elvis's early records. So he was part of that package. They had the same manager. So if you if you knew about Elvis, you would likely know about Nick. Um, And um, and we were all in the same label briefly in London about 40 years ago. Um, The Soft Boys had our second single was on. Radar, which was a label launched, launched, uh, you know, with the imprimatur of Elvis and Nick on it. This is, they were the, they were the names on the label, and they were the only things that ever sold anything. And it, it folded after eighteen months. But you know, um, yeah. So, and I, and I, I'm, I lived, I was a neighbour of Nick's in in West London for many years, and we're still. Um, it was his birthday the other day, so <laughs> we still see each other fairly regularly, and um, and I run into Elvis at times. And yeah, there, there, there they all are. There we all are. Uh, also, in that conversation, I heard I'm going I'm to quote you to you that was a great little you know, to talk about performing a little bit. And you you were talking about the fact that you 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 tour, and that's how you make a living, and that's how you have to, and part of the. The bigger yeah. he was talking about the quote about you being top forty proof and how you feel about that and you seem fine about it except for the money is the impression I got. Yeah. And you yeah. said I don't have to make thousands of people feel happy. I just need need to make a few people feel weird and then my job is done. Oh, did I say that? You did. Oh. <laughs> how do you uh, feel well, about that? Probably. That's probably. Yeah. I mean. I remember years ago, my my encyclopedic knowledge of Robin Hitchcock interviews. I, I said <laughs> some somewhere someone was asking me, you know, how big do you want to be, son, or whatever. And I said, well, I I want to, you know, it's, I I just want to make a living. I don't need to make two livings. And I sort of kind of hold by that. Although having said that, you certainly in America, you need a lot of you need to make a lot of money in order to just have one living. You know, this is the land of hidden costs. Everything is plus tax, um, plus tips. You know, um, where I come from, there was a medical health uh, service and, um, you know, we, the national health, which even though it's been chipped away at a bit by antibodies, is still essentially there. Um the operations I've had, minor operations here in Britain, uh, would have cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars over here. And um, so I, I don't really know how long I can survive in the States. Um, there's more money here, but um, but it's also more expensive. So, so it's interesting, really. But, you know, money has the last word in this culture, and that's why... We have this president. It's completely, completely logical. Yeah, and and again, one of the reasons I, my poor listeners, hear me say this every episode is that I feel like this is a topic that, while nobody seems to like the idea of talking about it, is really important because he was born very wealthy. He's only succeeded at one thing in life. That's becoming famous or even infamous. Got him to the presidency. And so I yes. think the power of fame is important for us to take a look at. Yeah, fame, wealth, fame and wealth. I mean, I think fame is actually seen as a moral quality. Yes. Like if you are famous, then in some way you are blessed. You are, it's worth, you know, people want to touch the hem of your garment. They want to kiss your ring. It's the famous dude. You know, it's the famous lady. Here they come. My God, you know, you've shaken hands with, with that person can i touch your hand will some of it rub off onto me you know um yeah money and fame are extremely (laughs) i guess that they're linked and you know fame wouldn't necessarily pay your bills but in some ways it might make it easier for you um and i don't know i can't 
all I can say is that, you know, fame would, they say fame will get you a table at any restaurant, but it also means that everybody will stare at you. Yes. So do you want to be the person who is being stared at while you're eating? And, and do you want the world to revolve around you um, quite so visibly? Uh, you know, I don't know. Do you? Is that something you like? Yeah, no, I, I have always, and in doing this for the past three years, you know, I, any any creative endeavor I've ever done is is pretty much therapy for myself. And I've always uh, kind of, maybe because I'm lazy or I'm I'm whatever, various things, but I get to a certain point in a creative endeavor and then I move on to another completely different thing. So I've never had a kind of success, which at times makes me a little bit envious, but never of the and i think people don't believe this but never of the i i to to not be able to be anonymous in the world would be a horror yes and it it seems it seems to me that you have this you have you know there are a few people i've spoken to who have what i call a kind of a a beauty point where what i envy is the ability to collaborate with people that i that i really to drop someone a line and say, hey, I have this idea. And you seem to have collaborated with such a wonderful wide variety of, of great people. And that's the kind of thing that success and a some fame can help with. Um, I think that's not really, that's not fame in the general sense. That's being known, being known in your field. You know, I mean, like the greatest Nobel physicist that's ever lived uh, or that's currently alive. Or I don't know how many Nobel physicists there are that are alive. What am I? Um, I mean, just some some eminent dude who is respected in their field could walk down the street and nobody would know who they were. But to people who did, this person would be would be wholly writ. You know, they'd be the the guy, the dude. They would be, oh Lord, your eminence. You know. The ring kissing would come out. The genuflecting after you, please. Can I buy you a, a you know, a soy cappuccino? And so I probably would aspire to the latter. You know, being I am known in my field, but also because I've been around a really long time. So, so I've I've met a lot of people. I've met people who've been going as long as me. Andy Partridge and I actually started working together about a decade ago and we, we've got something coming out fairly soon Ooh, that's exciting. Uh, but you know but for 30 years we didn't really know each other at all we knew who the other one was and and you know and there, yeah you know and there's younger people who have picked up on me because they they're younger so they they heard me when they were growing up and a lot of them are now have a much bigger profile than i do but you know they're still they were they were listeners in their day, or still are. Um, so I think it's one of the pluses of having lasted that long. It's just you you know more people, more people know you. I look forward to that Andy Partridge collaboration. It sounds really good. It's um, I'm not sure when it's coming out, but it'll be a it'll be an, a sort of extended play. <laughs> um, good old EP. A good old EP, but it'll be a, it'll be a twelve-inch extended play, I think, at thirty-three. So it'll be like a sort of like an EP album, but it, it sounds really good, I think. The fellow in LA was asking you about, I guess, '90s psychedelia in LA bands that I don't really know either, but and you said talked about it and how there really wasn't much in Britain because everybody was so ironic, you know, post you know glam and post metal in post hard rock days, but there were a few, I wasn't wondering if you ever had any thoughts about bands when they were, when they came or if you know them, uh, like, um, teardrop explodes or echo and the bunny Man and Julian Cope that were, were kind of, they were, yes. I mean, those two were the, were the most successful. Um, and they, they'd still of, and I guess they were probably, um, they, harked back to that same sound and they were into all of the same people as me but they were pop stars you know they they wanted to be pop stars they were the right material they were from liverpool um 
had that they had the right attitude and they were able to sort of connect with the public in a in a in a pop star way um they've gone off in in different tangents i think that the bunny men are still kind of feasting on that carcass you know struggling into that costume whereas julian i think had long abandoned all that yeah he used he, and I think it, for that for that reason is much more interesting. He he used his initial pop stardom to then go off and and be the exploratory sort of Sid Barrett but but surviving character. And then when he kind of, I think like me, he just writes what what the hell he wants to, and there's no you know he's. <laughs> he doesn't feel that he there's a I don't think he's felt that the um constraints of marketing for many decades and then and then decided to become a you know the modern antiquarian but he's also got an enormous amount of energy and enthusiasm so he can he he can turn himself to these things and I don't think he questions himself much he just said right now I'm going to go around every megalithic site in Europe write about it and then we'll publish a solid paperback book and you know <laughs> somehow he and his he and his wife managed to keep it all going financially um you know julian won't even tour i mean he and, and partridge who was won't play live at all um i think they all i suppose in re- looking at it from a distance we probably are similar figures andy partridge the same age even yeah yeah i guess the one other would be psychedelic furs and i think they kind of just do nostalgia reunion stuff yeah um yes i mean the thing with i'm a huge fan of of the furs of of me too brothers first two albums yeah yeah and and I, i like the second two as well but the that's interesting because Richard Butler, have you seen his paintings? No. Oh, okay. He's a, he, he's a painter. He's a very good painter. Um, and he has exhibitions sometimes and he just has a very definite, slightly unearthly style. It, it, to me, it's as if someone was looking at this, world from a nearby dimension not a very different one but a nearby dimension and so things are kind of slightly distorted slightly occluded it's like the reception is bad or not bad but intermittent rather like when we started talking today you had to make some adjustments and so it's like Richard sort of looking at people from close up but they're they're through an odd filter as if in places the screen is thicker than others but so I mean I think all that side of him comes out in painting and so the first shows are really straight they're simply replications of the records they the the guitarist um uh what's his name Mr. Good he he just plays John Ashton's old lines and they sound like the record. And so you go along to a first night and it's glorious. It's like, oh my God, you know, India. Yeah. <laughs> and all that. And uh, and he, yeah, he's, he, he's like McCartney. He does it exactly like it was. He doesn't, you know, the paint dried. That's the, that's the thing he's going to put out. Whereas, you know, I don't think Julian Cope's interested in replicating his old songs partridge won't play live at all and if you go and see me i'm playing my old songs much slower and the i'm trying to hit the same notes but i know that the arrangements have drifted i don't i don't i'm not doing a bob dylan but i know that my arrangements of the songs have drifted a little bit in 30 years but the furs it's absolutely like it was you know I really love your your Ghost in You cover, and I'm pretty protective of songs like that that I already loved. So that's it's, it's uh, really great. Oh, thank you. But I I know you're running out of time. But the one thing I I wanted to to push back on a little bit is 
Do you think you're really top 40 proof or you decided that you weren't going to, that that isn't who you wanted to be? Uh, I, I never really wanted to be it. And I think if you want, you really have to want to be it. I don't think you can luck into that kind of popularity. You might, if you were the drummer in a band that had a couple of really driven people in it, you know, if you were a side person, then you might do that. Um, John and Paul were going to make it anyway and probably Ringo. And so George kind of went along with them, you know, <laughs> yeah. whether George would ever have been a star. I don't know. Would, would Bill Wyman, you know, would Charlie Watts, whereas Mick Jagger and Keith Richard obviously were going to be, you know, they, they had that, they had that shark like instinct. Um, my shark like instinct is to create songs, to write songs where they go afterwards, I'm not quite so bothered. I, I, I've i always felt a bit uncomfortable about being product. And in order to succeed commercially on a big level, you have to see yourself as product. Did you see the David Bowie exhibition? No. Uh, I, I wanted to. I didn't get to it. No. Yeah. Um, well, there's many interesting things, but one of them is the fact that he kind of storyboarded himself. You know, there were right back to early bands he was in, he would do kind of drawings of the band or himself, you know, how he saw it, how he saw himself. And so there's a kind of detachment about Ziggy Stardust. He already saw Ziggy Stardust as as a thing, as an as a as a character, as a like somebody might invent Superman or Green Lantern, you know. Um, okay, there's this character. I mean, Ziggy even looks a bit like a superhero. And um, I think you have to have that detachment from yourself. That's why a lot of people make it under a different name, you know. Elton, Elton Hercules John, Bob Dylan. Um, you know, the Stones and the Beatles, those were their real names because they had a different... They, they, they came to prominence as a group. But so Elvis many Costello. people are kind of yeah, Elvis Costello. You're, you're the the character that breaks through, that, that's bigger than the world and stands on the plinth, and everybody throws garlands over them. Um, that that character is of you, but it's not you. It's not your name. And and um, you know, even Sid Barrett wasn't wasn't. He was Roger Barrett, and it, it's kind of like. Which is in a lyric, never, I think, of yours. I've never had that detachment from myself that made me feel comfortable being marketed. And when I was on A&M Records and they would make efforts to try and push me, you know, break me or whatever, they did it from time to time, um, I would just feel uncomfortable being a, a you know, becoming a, becoming product, I guess. If you ever are so inspired, Google uh, Borges and I. Jorge Luis Borges wrote a, a two-page story about called Borges and I about him looking at this figure Borges who he doesn't really oh, yeah. understand. Yeah, uh, how it can have come to be. Who who is this guy? Um, well, I think you are about to have another commitment. I'm going. I'm, I've got. Uh, I've got about another five minutes, and I've got a. I've got a. Um, uh, start to because I'm just about to go off on tour and I've just come back. I'm, I'm sort of very, I'm all over the place. Well, I'm looking forward. I'm going to see you in, in, in Brattleboro, Vermont in April in a oh. very odd and wonderful space. It's, I think it's an old, it's called the Stone Church. It is an old church and it has surprisingly good sound for a, for a church. It's a nice, really guy. I hope they don't. I, I'm sure they're going to put down seats. Some shows are just open standing, but I assume they'll have seats. I hope there will be some standing room. It's a nice, really nice place. And uh, is it very cold? No, no, they heat it just fine. <laughs> I mean, indoors you'll be warm. Um, so look, let us know when this goes up. Um, I certainly will. I can, I can get it um, on Twitter. You know, just sort of the the. The R. Hitchcock publicity behemoth can I would I would crackle into life. Greatly appreciate that 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 monster being used to my good effect. 
Oh, please do, and don't forget. I don't know if you mentioned that I've got a I've got a single coming out. It's going to be when when is this going up? I'm probably in two weeks. Great. Well, I've got a record coming out, and I'm not. I mean, it's it's a vinyl forty five, and um, one side's called uh, Sunday Never Comes, and the other one's called um, Take Off Your Bandages. Sunday Never Comes was was recorded, was written for this movie Juliet Naked, and in in that movie, um, Ethan Hawke sings it. So I thought I'd do my version, <laughs> but it's just on it's just on our little label um, that my partner Emma Swift and I run called uh, the Tiny Ghost, and um, so it's it's a Tiny Ghost forty five and. Um, only available from shows and by mail order at the moment but anyway i just thought i'd give it i should give it a plug you should indeed and i look i i'm looking forward to that and i've also been wanting to see the movie that's great it's actually a very british movie it has it has an american star but in a way it feels more british it's a commentary but it's the transition on what we were talking about earlier fame and people's the kind of the the listener the audience the fan the how they mythologize just like i mythologize cities yes i read um, the book uh, how did it feel did ethan hawk actually sing it he sings it he sings a finished version how do you do kind of pretty good i mean it's uh sort of very slightly like Michael Stipe, it just sounds slightly REM-ish, I think. Um, and uh, but you know, it sounds good. Um, and then and then he there's a demo version because the you know the movie is essentially about demos. So there's a demo version where he's singing over my demo backing track with oh, the cool. guitar and the piano. And then there's my demo version, which is on the record. So I thought I'd do um, an actual, you know, my own studio version because because they done they done there. So so I've done a one with my Nashville band, um, and that's what that record is. Will one get a download card when they buy the vinyl? Yes, one gets a download card when they buy the vinyl, and actually we can we when the video is ready um, because bizarrely there will be a video with it. Um, one can send you the um, the link, so one won't have to even buy the vinyl. You can just download the stuff. But yeah, no, lucky purchases. It's vinyl and downloads only, and available through your site, I'm guessing. Which through I'll... my website and through live shows. I'm sure there'll be several copies in Battle Bro. Roll up, Vermont people. Now's your chance.
One last point, uh, thing is that when you mentioned uh, someone else singing your song, uh, a friend of mine had a very nice little email interaction with you, uh, who, who's a San Francisco musician who also has an experience of someone else singing his song who is more famous. And that is my friend Sonny Smith, who wrote you because he was... Sonny, yes. Yeah. I like his records. I yeah. do, too. I do, too. Uh, and uh, he he really uh, he appreciated your response. Yeah, I know. I'd like to meet him sometime. I was like, how are they doing, Sunny and the Sunset? Doing fine. He is starting a label. In the, in the outro, I'll look up the, uh, the the name of the label and pimp it. Oh, yeah. Well, no, it makes sense. I think it makes sense having a having your own label and maybe having a distribution deal because people you have to do so much for yourself now anyway. You know, the days of labels providing you with... Um, you know, artwork and publicity and promotional material and radio pluggers and videos and all, you know, that's all that stuff you have to hire for yourself anyway. So what labels are now? And they don't even function as a bank, or at least not on, not on the level that people like me are on. Um, which so makes it much harder for them to, to function, but it's still good to have a label if you're a, a newer artist because it gives you a, you know, people believe you because you're on a record label. But I think once you've launched yourself, you have to take so much responsibility anyway for, for your records these days. That's a good, another reason not to make very many of them. Well, I'll, I'll email you a link to his, to his label too. Maybe he'll try to convince you to do a single, a one-off someday. On it. Oh, will he? Will he? I bet he would. Hey, Jimmy, I've got to go. The All right. Signal's up. I'll see you in April. The flags are out. Yes, okay. Good talking. Thanks very much. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find all things Robin Hitchcock at his website, robinhitchcock.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N, hitchcock.com. You can find all episodes of this podcast at 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's the numerals 15-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Don't forget to stick around at the very end here for the flip side of the single, which is really lovely. And check out Robin's tour dates. And maybe I'll see you at the Stone Church. And just for ducks, even though I've read it on here once before... 
Here is Jorge Luis Borges's Borges and I. The other one, the one called Borges, is the one things happen to. I walk through the streets of Buenos Aires and stop for a moment, perhaps mechanically now, to look at the arch of an entrance hall and the grill work on the gate. I know of Borges from the mail and see his name on a list of professors or in a biographical dictionary. I like hourglasses, maps, 18th century typography, the taste of coffee and the prose of Stevenson. He shares these preferences, but in a vain way that turns them into the attributes of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that ours is a hostile relationship. I live, let myself go on living, so that Borges may contrive his literature, and this literature justifies me. It is no effort for me to confess that he has achieved some valid pages. But those pages cannot save me, perhaps because what is good belongs to no one, not even to him, but rather to the language and to tradition. Besides, I am destined to perish, definitively, and only some instant of myself can survive in him. Little by little I am giving over everything to him, though I am quite aware of his perverse custom of falsifying and magnifying things. Spinoza knew that all things longed to persist in their being. The stone eternally wants to be a stone and the tiger a tiger. I shall remain in Borges, not in myself, if it is true that I am someone. But I recognize myself less in his books than in many others or in the laborious strumming of a guitar. Years ago I tried to free myself from him and went from the mythologies of the suburbs to the games with time and infinity. But those games belong to Borges now, and I shall have to imagine other things. Thus, my life is a flight, and I lose everything, and everything belongs to oblivion, or to him. I do not know which of us has written this page. This podcast is engineered by Ed Patnode. Our theme music is by Christian Kondari. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.
to the forest to uh, repopulate the land. A lot of boys prefer.